Good morning again. If you got your Bibles, I'd love for you to uh, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As mentioned, uh, for the next several weeks, we'll be uh, in chapter 6 and 7. And if you've read 1 Corinthians, then you know that Paul's going to bring up sexual immorality and singleness and divorce. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to dive in it and uh, pray for grace but also know that these things are meant to fit together. And so I'm not going to say everything there is to say about anything in one given sermon. I do pray that they'll all kind of fit together. And, uh, and so 1 Corinthians 6, we're going to start at verse 12 and read through verse 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be so. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Amen. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you for your word and thank you that worship uh, is good for our souls. It is good to sing of your praises. It is good to confess truth. It is good to be with the saints. It is good to participate in baptisms and it is good to hear your word read and also proclaimed of all the ways that you have orchestrated that your people be kept in your grace, mature in your grace, and persevere until the end. You give us means, these means that we are participating in this morning. And so, Lord, I pray for your spirit to be at work, the spirit that raised Jesus, the spirit that lives in us. Would Holy Spirit be at work to empower both preaching and thinking and hearing and obeying. Father, uh, it is required that those who stand in the gap be holy and we fall short and I fall short. And Lord, uh, I need the same grace that I proclaim and I thank you that it's real and that it's ours. So glorify yourself in our time, I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So, um, scholars all agree that what Paul is doing in this section is actually quoting some sayings that were going around in Corinth. And so what I want to do this morning is just 
I'm going to put some popular sayings on the screen and nod your head or say amen if you've heard these. Follow your heart. How many of you have heard that in the culture around us, right? Amen? All right. It is what it is. I asked my daughter, I said, baby, what are some of the sayings that Gen Zers are saying? And she said, it is what it is. I'm like, what that mean? It is what it is, dad. If something doesn't go your way, it is what it is. I'm like, okay, that's a saying. I get it. Do what makes you feel happy. Y'all heard that? I'm going to do me from now on. Next one. If it feels good, it must be good. Try it before you buy it. Maybe you've convinced yourself to move in with this person that you plan on marrying and what the world will say. Yeah, try it before you buy it, because once you buy it, you can't, you know, right? That's the logic of the world. You've seen these commercials. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And that becomes this license to go do something reckless and crazy. And you actually think it stays there, right? What about this one? Snitches get stitches. Y'all heard of that one? All right. If you tell and you witness something that is criminal or wrong, it's a threat. Like if you say something, I'm going to hurt you. But but that's a saying. All right. Another one. Don't get mad. Get even. Vengeance is yours. Right. And not the Lord's. What about this? YOLO. You only live once. Live your best life now. What about this one? God took him because he needed another angel. Y'all heard that? Now, is there one more, Greg? That's it. All right. That's 10 or 11. These are sayings, right? And every culture has them. You hear them in our music, you see them on television, they're in our books, they're in conversations that you have with just people who will give you bad counsel. Yeah, just move in, it's fine, it's good, it's all good. And here's the thing, a part of being a believer is learning discernment. It's learning to examine what we're hearing and what we're being fed in light of the truth of God's word. And here's the thing, They can't both be right. Every culture has these maxims. And if we are honest, if we really interrogated these, they don't stand. They're fraud. What if everybody did what their hearts wanted? Do you know how deceitful our hearts are? Navigating life by your heart It's like being stranded in the woods with a broken compass. You're not going to get out of there. What if everyone only did what felt good? Would you get up at 2.43 and nurse? Would you go to the gym? One-fourth of y'all are crazy. (laughs) And you just love the gym. That is your thing. The other three-fourths of us, we just kind of do it because, hey, I need to steward this old aging body, right? Living on a budget doesn't feel good. But people know that the good things in life you often have to sacrifice for. You often have to endure what is uncomfortable. So we're not going to always do what feels good. You know what happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. 
Your money might stay in Vegas, <laughs> right? But you go to Vegas, you might come back with something that you didn't leave here with. You come back with a boatload of shame and guilt and a seared conscience. We know this, right? We know that if a world that we inhabited were no one testified to the truth, that if everybody says snitches get stitches, therefore I'm not going to testify to watching her get raped or watching him get killed or watching her harm that child, I'm not going to say anything. What kind of world is that? It's anarchy. It's chaos. And the world can't even make its mind up. You only live once. That's what they say. And then the same people say, well, God needed another angel. Which one is it, dude? It's chaos. And we know that. And a part of being a believer is learning to interrogate what we hear. What's happening in Corinth is there are maxims and sayings and these things that are kind of coming out of the city. And here's what the people of the, the church, they are not doing. They are not interrogating what they're hearing, but they're letting the culture and the world. And sometimes it ain't the culture. Sometimes it's us. We start to form our own maxims that we functionally live by, that we won't codify and spread. But we start to dethrone God and make ourselves the authority. And we use that to justify the evil in our own hearts. The problem isn't just the culture, it's us. And a part of growing in Christ is discernment. I'm discerning not only what I'm hearing out there, I'm discerning what's being manufactured in me as well. And they were not doing that. And the result was them flaunting some make-believe freedom Freedom to do whatever we want, freedom to go sleep with prostitutes, freedom to go to dinners, and then when the women or the men came in, freedom to engage in sexual intercourse, and then to kind of go back home like everything is good, everything ain't good. That's what Paul is actually saying. And beloved, this isn't written to the church. I mean, this isn't written to the city. These warnings are actually written to the church, to the church of God in Corinth, called to be holy. And so the wrong posture when we read these passages is to say that the problem is out there. No, this stuff was happening in here. Any one of us, man or woman, married or single, can struggle and can fall sexually. And the good news is that Paul believes these sexually immoral can be healed, helped, and we can have hope because of Jesus and the blessings that flow from our union with him in the gospel. And so I want to look at this. I want to That's kind of the big idea, but I do want to dig into sort of the nuts and bolts of the passage. And the first thing we see here is that sexual integrity can be hard for many. I'm going to repeat that in case you're writing notes. Sexual integrity can be hard for many. I imagine that some of us, we hear that and it doesn't register. And that's okay. My youngest of children, this doesn't register 
yet. Right now, little boys are stinky and girls are icky. But I promise you, one day is coming when the same little kids you want to fight, you want to hold their hands. And that is natural, and that is good, and that is beautiful, and that is by God's divine design. You would not be here right now if that wasn't true. I also imagine that those, I don't know, I'm not 100 yet, I'm not 110. Maybe when I get there, I can, I can know what it's like as a 100-year-old, but I imagine, and, and feel free to correct me, I, I, I feel free to correct me on this, but I imagine that later in life when I'm 110, do 110-year-olds, I don't know, like maybe that's not a, maybe that's not a thing, right? I, I don't know. I imagine that many of you in this room have experienced a lot of victory and healing and wholeness with respect to sexual integrity. And that is by God's grace. I also don't want this to be a source of pride because the scriptures say we all like sheep go astray, each of us in our own ways, and God lays our sins upon Jesus. And so if you go down a list of besetting sins, things that might trap you up, for some of you, sexual integrity is not on your list. But I know you have a list because I know what the scripture says. We all go astray in our own ways. And so for you, it might be pride or it might be anger or it might be um, anxiety or it, it, it might be impatience or it might be racism or classism or uh, lying like like we all we all come here as, as this confused bag that Jesus is getting straight by his grace and so I, I don't want those of you who do not struggle in this way to look upon those who do with a spirit of haughtiness that that's not how this is meant to be read but for some it's hard and we see evidence in this book such were some of you. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were adulterers, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God, but you were washed. You were justified. And so Paul is already saying in this same letter that this is an issue. It's an issue when a man has his, fa a man has his, uh, his father's wife. It's an issue here where some are going to prostitutes. And guess what? It's even an issue next week. We don't think about sexual immorality in the terms that Paul will, but Paul will actually say we can be sexually immoral by using the gift the wrong way or when there is actually God's blessing to consummate your marriages and to enjoy deep connection in the marriage bed to withhold intimacy is sexual immorality. Right? So this is all over the book. Jesus talks about it, lustful intent. The author of Proverbs says, son, I want to warn you from going to that woman's house. She's fine, and she's alluring, and she smells good, and her door is open, and she's giving you a whiff of her scent. He's saying, stay away from her. David and Bathsheba, it's, it's all over the Bible. And it's hard in our day and age. It's hard biologically. God gave us bodies, he gave us eyes, he gave us sexual longings that can make it hard. 
It can make it hard because of complicated past. I learned about sex from unbelieving cousins and uncles. I ain't going to even repeat. I still remember what they said. And maybe some of you had sexual trauma early in life. Kiese Lehman, he's a Jackson native who wrote the book Heavy. There was a chapter in there that um, it brought tears to me. Here's what he writes. He says, when I was young, I was sexually abused by an older teenage babysitter only for her to babysit me and to bring an older boy around. Then she came over and didn't abuse me, and I wondered what was wrong with me. Right? That kind of trauma that you endure. It's difficult because our world is over-sexualized. You ride to 20, you will see billboards of strippers. Right? You watch television, the ads are more risque. Let's not even mention pornography, which is a form of virtual prostitution. By the time our service is over, it has been estimated that the porn industry earns $3,000 per second. We're in here about 1.5 hours, that's 5,400 seconds. That's $16 million in pornography profits while we're in this room. It has more revenue than the NFL, the NBA, and the MLB combined. More people visit pornography sites than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 60% of divorces in the U.S. involve pornography. 54% of church-going men, 17% of church-going women struggle. And you know what's behind this? It's these sayings. It's okay. It's just sex. Nobody sees. Nobody knows. No one gets hurt. Everybody's doing it. There are no long-term consequences. I'm safe. And that's exactly what's happening in Corinth. That's why your ESV Bibles will put verse 12, the first part of that verse, in quotes, all things are lawful. And you see it again in quotes, all things are lawful. You see it again in verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And I think there's actually a fourth instance, but what Paul is doing, this is what they're hearing and this is what they're saying. And because they are not discerning and weighing what is true against what they're hearing, now they've given themselves license. All things are lawful. We're free in Jesus to do whatever we want to do with our bodies. You are not free to do whatever you want to do with your bodies. We know the gospel. The gospel says that you can never be made righteous by observing the law, but through faith in Christ alone. But the law has a threefold use, family. The first use, it is to condemn you. When we read the law, the Ten Commandments, guess what it is supposed to do? 
it is supposed to drive you and I to our knees. I am an adulterer. I am a thief. I do make graven images. I do not keep the Sabbath. I do not love neighbor. I do not love God with heart and mind and soul and strength. And therefore, I need a savior. And the law does its work by driving us to the cross. The same law restrains evil. Have you ever wondered why our judicial system in a lot of ways have been shaped around the Ten Commandments? It's a sin to murder and it's a crime to murder. Right? It's a sin to steal and it's a crime to steal. I remember like the, the old, old, old days, like nothing was open on a Sunday, right? Because th there was this some semblance that it's a day of rest. You know why? Because God says, I will restrain evil through my law so that even non-believers will have some restraint. That's the second use of the law. The third use of the law for the Christian, daddy, how do you want me to live? What does it look like to honor you? It looks like not sleeping with someone who's not your wife. It looks like being a truth teller. It looks like worshiping with me and gathering with me on the Sabbath. It's not a day for you to do what you want to do. So how do we honor the Lord? Through the law. And what were they doing? They were only looking at the first use of the law. I'm free from the law. Now, let me go do whatever I want with my body. And Paul says, that's a lie. And here's the thing. That was from the inside of the church. I actually think there were other sayings coming from outside the church. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. Therefore, what, it, what I do with my body doesn't matter. That's what they were saying in Corinth. Now, think about it. Food for the stomach. God, you gave me intestines and you gave me a digestive system and you gave me hunger and therefore you give me hunger. It must mean that I need food. And they were saying the same thing was true about sex. You gave me sexual desires and longings. Therefore, you must mean, look, bro, we got chicken and pork and vegetables and avocados and lamb, and skins, and hot chips, and Mountain Dew, right? We got all this variety of things that go into our mouths and go into our stomachs. So what you must be saying is you want me to have a variety of men and a variety of women, right? You put those desires there. Paul says, no. You catch what's happening? It's coming from within. Antinomianism. And it's coming from outside an unbiblical view of sex. And guess what, saints? We got to be looking with discernment in both places. The historic Christian church has always embraced that sex is good and it's beautiful. And it's pleasurable and it's bonding 
And it is great to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That is the historic position. And what will easily happen is people professing faith to make Christianity more plausible or to justify sinful behavior will attempt to change the historic doctrine of the church. And therefore, we have to, with discernment, filter what we hear from professing Christians at times and what we hear out there. The world will say, you're hungry, so eat. You're horny, so go do whatever with whomever. The world will say, we're just hooking up. The world will say, and as believers, we practice discernment. But this is why it's hard. The next thing Paul wants us to talk about is the harm for the lack of sexual integrity. The harm that is caused by the lack of sexual integrity. So we drove to Canada a few years ago. And that's a, you know, it's a pretty long drive. I mean, from Jackson, Mississippi to Toronto, Canada. We drove. And a couple weeks ago, we drove to Huntsville, Alabama to see my brother. And here's what we noticed. If you just get in your car and just drive, we noticed a bunch of red-tailed hawks that were dead on the side of the interstate. Just, I mean, a bunch of them. So, you know, Google is like everything now. I'm like, Google, why are there so many red-tailed hawks killed on interstates? And here's what you'll discern. Red-tailed hawks, especially in the winter, are looking for food. Food is because of leaves fall. It's harder for them to kind of see what they would normally see when leaves are not there. And so they will perch on lights and high trees. And the interstate gives a, a, a great window of visibility. And so when we throw our trash out or throw our orange peels out or our apples out or little field mice scurry across, these red-tailed hawks lock in. And what they do is that they lock in and then they just dive. And they're coming because their eyes are locked on food. And then what they don't see is this three-ton truck coming down the interstate at 70 miles an hour. And so they're diving for food, locked on food, not knowing that there is harm coming down the interstate. And then there's this collision that, that sexual sin works the same way, right? We get locked on. Something is alluring. Something is enticing. Something is appealing. And what the enemy does is he hides the carnage that's coming. And then when we're in, destruction comes. What Paul is doing is pulling the veil back and saying, hey, you need to count the costs. You need to know that there is great harm with sexual immorality. Now, first, sexual immorality may appear to be freedom, but it's actually a form of bondage. When we are saved in Jesus, the chains of bondage have been broken. 
We just sang about it. And we came out of the grave. But what sexual sin does is it enslaves. Notice what Paul says, all things are lawful. Look at what he says, but I will not be dominated. That word there, dominion. That's a familiar word to us if you've been reading Genesis. God gave us dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the heavens. We were meant to exercise dominion. And what sexual sin does is it inverts that. It puts us back in bondage. And you can see bondage here, right? Them trying to justify their sin, bondage. Them trying to twist scripture, bondage. Them ignoring scripture, bondage. Them letting the prevailing world, words of the world shape them. It's bondage. Spiritually and physiologically, we become different people when we indulge. We are changed. And this is why it's so hard to break free. Secondly, sexual immorality is suicide. Look at verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's a form of suicide. Now, this verse, y'all, has puzzled scholars. Is Paul saying that sexual sin is a different type of sin, far worse than other sins? Several scholars believe that is how that ought to be interpreted. John Calvin is one. There are many. And if this is what Paul is saying, he is saying that sexual sin stains the body and the soul in ways that other sins do not. Right. And, and I can be convinced that, that that might be partially true. That sexual sin leads to STDs. It might lead to unwanted pregnancies in the hookup culture. It can lead to guilt and shame and awkwardness when you're around this person that has seen your most intimate parts, who you're not married to. It can make another person jealous. It betrays trust. Like, like I get it. But... Many other scholars say that that's not what Paul means. This is actually a saying that he is quoting. Every sin a person commits is outside the body. This is one of their sayings in Corinth, even though in your ESV, it's not in quotes. And I land there. I land there, one, because there's a lot of evidence. One guy who's way smarter than me has written 10 reasons why Paul isn't saying what we typically think when we read this, but he's actually quoting their saying because they were saying every sin a person commits is outside the body. And this meshes well because in Corinth, they didn't esteem the body. The body was a prison and it's all about the soul. And so what we do with our bodies don't matter. And that's why Paul has to talk about the resurrection of these same bodies in chapter 15. So what Paul could be saying is they're saying. And the reason I think he's he's quoting their saying is because first the word other is not there. It's not even there. It's been added to smooth translation. Second, Paul has already been quoting their sayings in this chapter. And third, surely sexual immorality is not the only sin that we commit against our bodies. Cutting. 
eating disorders, suicide, drunkenness, addiction, gluttony. If sexual immorality is the only sin that we commit against the body, then what about these other sins where we self-mutilate and harm ourselves? What Paul is saying is you say the body doesn't matter, but I'm actually telling you that what you do with your body does matter. Sexual sin is self-harm. Third, it doesn't just hurt us, it hurts others. This same phrase, all things are lawful, this, it's also used in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul quotes it there, and there he tells them, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And since sexual immorality involves another person that is not our spouse, it is one of the most unloving things that we can do. Those are other image bearers. It's someone's mom and daughter, sister, brother, uncle, nephew. Consider pornography. You're harming someone that is probably caught up in sex trafficking. You're harming someone who has been alienated from family and friends and Christ. Consider how adultery impacts children and families and the other person's spouse and your own spouse. Consider the shame that comes when truth comes to light. Most people change jobs and change cities. Trust is lost in a moment and takes forever to rebuild. Paul wants you to see, beloved, that it's harmful. It's also harmful because it harms Jesus. Look at what Paul says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? We are so deeply united to Jesus in soul and body that we take him and harm him in our sexual misgivings. Should the one who is beautiful be a part of something so heinous? Do you see? It's harmful and it's harming. But our third and final point, there's help and there's hope for the sexually immoral. There is real hope and it's only found in the gospel and it's not fake help, beloved. It's real, and we know it's real because consider what Paul doesn't say and consider what Paul does say. Nowhere in this passage does Paul say, get out of here. God is ashamed of you. He doesn't want you anymore. Go get saved again. You're unworthy. Like, 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 it's not here. So Paul... Under all of this is this assumption 
that yes, you go astray. Yes, you have been sexually immoral. Yes, you have been deceived. But there is so much grace and mercy and pardon and healing and hope. And it's only found in this God who loves us with this relentless, forgiving, compassionate, steadfast love. And consider what Paul does command. He actually gives two commands in this section. You know what they are? Flee all sexual immorality. We could translate it, be fleeing, or make it a habit and a practice to always be running away from that which is immoral. That's one command. And the other command is therefore glorify God with your body. Those are the two commands. And here's the thing. Paul isn't commanding us of anything that we can't do by the Spirit. Which is why he says in this passage, the same God who raised Jesus, that power is in you now. He says the Holy Spirit has taken residence inside of you, therefore glorify God with your body. If you try the self-help stuff, if you try the willpower stuff, I'm telling you, you will fail. But if it's by the Spirit, you can flee. You can flee that which would have tripped you up a year ago. You can glorify God with this body that did perverse things a week ago. That's the good news of the gospel is you can. And it starts with what is it that enables me to live with self-control? and dignity and honor what is it that that leads us to do that and it's the good news of jesus i'm telling y'all we're going to beat this horse every week it's the gospel we must believe that it is possible to be completely forgiven of all of our sexual misgivings We must believe that we have the power by the Spirit to flee things and situations that we would have otherwise ran to. We must believe that we can, by the Spirit, give our bodies back to God and say, my body was not made for sexual immorality. It was made for you. Now, where is the power? So this week I was in Tucson and I went on a run and then a hike and I was listening to a podcast by a guy named Robert Cunningham and he's a pastor in Kentucky and um, he's just wading into uh, sexual sin and gender confusion and uh, it was a great podcast but, but here's what he says. He says, here's what not to do. You're not going to win arguments. If bodies and pronouns are being altered to accommodate our current cultural moment, trust me, your logic and reason alone has little sway. You can't debate your way out of this. Instead, you're going to have to tell people a better story. A better story about true love 
and real pleasure and how God meant our bodies to work and what we're meant to do with our bodies. It's the story of divine eros, divine love, sacred love, and it's a better story than what the world has. We gotta tell the story. And this is what Paul does. Did you know three times in this section, he says, do you not know? That your body is a temple? Do you not know that, that sex is beautiful? Do you not know that when you join to a prostitute, you become one body with her? Do you not know, like, like what Paul is doing, is telling them a better story? And here's the story, family. We believe that Paul has Genesis on his brain. You see it in verse 16. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That's Genesis. But what we often miss is two other allusions to Genesis that I think fill the picture out for us. Genesis 39. We're told that Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there and the Lord was with Joseph and everything Joseph did he prospered and Potiphar entrusted everything to Joseph and then we're told Joseph was handsome he had a six-pack he was fine right that's what the text that's my translation right (laughs) and it says after his Potiphar's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness against God and you know what happened she cornered him one day took his garment and commanded him to lie with me and he left now why am I bringing that story up because two words that you see here are used in Genesis 39 Joseph did what did he entertain her No, it says he fled. The second, and it's the same thing we're commanded here to flee. The second thing, how did Joseph get in Egypt? Who bought him? Potiphar. And do you know how Paul ends this? You were bought Same word with the price. Now glorify God in your body and flee sexual immorality. Do you see? This is the story. It's the story of the divine rescue mission. We want pleasure and we want love and we do the perverse with our bodies. But Joseph knows, he knows Genesis, that God has promised to send Messiah through the female organs. 
He knows that sex is sacred, that of all the ways Messiah will be born, he will come being born of a woman. He knows that sex is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman, and he is certain that Messiah is coming so much so that he would say, hey, when y'all get delivered out of Egypt, take my bones with you. Why would he say take my bones with you? Because of his, his theology of the resurrection and the body put it together, saints. Joseph knew Messiah would be born. And that's why Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 10, you didn't desire the blood of goats and bulls. What do you desire was my body that you gave to me that I will then steward and I will do nothing immoral with it. And then I will go to a cross and be stripped naked. I will be the laughing stock of Jerusalem. And I, the one who stewarded my body, who did not lay with prostitutes even though they were at my feet, I will buy them and make them mine. And what's driving Jesus? It's love, divine eros. And the one who buys you has the right to tell you what to do with your body because he's given his body up for you. When you understand that story, doesn't it shape how we view our bodies? Doesn't it shape how we view sex? Doesn't it shape how we view ourselves in light of this? This is the better story. One came, gave his body for you, that he might make his residence inside of your body and give you self-control by his spirit that we will give our bodies back to him. Bruce Marshall wrote, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. He's saying what we're truly looking for is pleasures that are only found in him we're truly looking for the one who has been for eternity looking for us. May our eyes and hearts and bodies find help and hope and healing in King Jesus. If you're struggling, we have groups here at the church. Reach out to Pastor Zach. We would love to walk with you. And here's the thing, there's no magic pill. What we're going to do is keep telling you the same story over and over and over again. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you so much for your word. Father, I pray for fellow strugglers. I pray for grace upon grace. I pray for minds that would be quick to forget what is evil, 
that will be quick to remember the grace and mercy that is ours in King Jesus. Father, do the work that you promised in us by your Spirit. Empower us in new ways to offer our bodies back to you in purity and wholeness and goodness and integrity. Do with it. We would marvel in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.